Pro Se, Law Through 60's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. And as always, I'm here with my co-host, Alex Lawson. Hi. And we also have a guest host who's come back with us again. It's Haley Kanaf. Hey, Haley. Hello. Nice to have you both here. We had our little holiday break, um, shaking off some dust here and getting back in the swing of things with Pro Se today. Yeah, kind of a weird energy. Um, I think I probably have a built-in excuse uh, for rustiness, apart from just not doing the podcast for a while. Uh, over the break, the Lawson house uh, got a special late Christmas present. Uh, my wife gave birth to our first child, a little baby boy, on uh, December 27th. Uh, we're so excited for you, Alex. And um, you were kind enough to show him on our Zoom call today. So oh, we yes. got to meet him. Uh, it's great to have a growing pro se family. Yeah, um, I've uh, I I to keep it sort of within the legal realm. I have considered suing him in the first uh, twelve days of his life for emotional distress. Uh, sure, yeah, <laughs> keeping, tortious uh, interference with sleep, tortious, something like that. Tortious interference of my sleep. Yes, exactly yeah. right. But uh, yeah, you know, he's a good kid. Uh, I have not had any kids before, so uh, I have nothing to judge it against. But I think I'm killing it. Uh, just, <laughs> just as it just as my own judge. Um, that feels right. I do, I do promise. However, I listen to a lot of podcasts, and uh, there is a tendency among certain podcast hosts when they have kids that the kids become the core of like any anecdote that they tell going forward. I will do my best to not have that be the case. But honestly, who are we kidding? Uh, that's that promise will probably hold for maybe a couple of weeks, and then I'll be full podcast dad mode. I don't mind it, Alex. I kind of am going to encourage you to go ahead and do it because a lot of kids' stories are cute. And this is from a childless woman, but I still love hearing my, <laughs> my friends talk about their kids. I don't think anyone's going to complain. I mean, I will because I'll like because I'll just be <laughs> that that will that will be further evidence of me being totally washed. Not like we needed more of that. But in any <laughs> case, everyone's happy and healthy uh, and we're ready to get back into the uh, into the show this year. Great way to kick off the new year with some good news like that. Um, we also have a ton of actual just news to cover. I always come back after a break thinking like, oh, it'll be a sleepy, snoozy week in the legal world. But yeah, absolutely not. We had a giant trial verdict against Elizabeth Holmes. She's the founder of Theranos, who was on up on fraud charges. She got convicted on several of those charges. So we brought on our own Dorothy Adkins to talk about it. Had a really nice chat with her. Haley and I got to hear about sort of what the aftermath will be from that big verdict. Uh, Dorothy uh, gained a certain amount of notoriety for her coverage of that, uh, uh, of that court proceeding. She was at the court, I think, every day at like 6 a.m. or something um, and was kind of like one of the go-to uh, people to follow if you were uh, keeping up with the trial. So happy she was able to join us. Um, but we do have some news to get to before that. Amber, you want to start us off? Well, you know, new year, still talking about COVID. Um, yeah. Omicron, okay, great. I cool. can't help it, guys. Omicron's <laughs> running rampant, as we all know. It's all over the country. That means we're likely to see more trials include some use of remote technology like Zoom. That's why this development really caught my eye this week. A Texas appeals court handed down what looks to be the first decision undoing a Zoom trial's outcome because of technical difficulties. I've certainly tried to invalidate certain podcast recordings because we were getting messed up on Zoom uh, or various other technical uh, platforms. But obviously, this was... This was something that was bound to happen, considering the sheer volume of legal proceedings that were now happening digitally. And we might have thought that was going to go away. Looks like there will be more of that. Um, 
and I think it's pretty relatable. But um, what uh, what exactly what exactly went down here? Yeah, let me break down some of it. So the 11th Court of Appeals in Texas sided with Kinder Morgan. That's a fossil fuel company. That company had argued they didn't get a fair trial because their lead lawyer in this tax appraisal case was unfairly hobbled by a variety of problems with Zoom. The particulars about the actual tax law part of this aren't really that important. And I'm thankful for that because that can get very complicated. (laughs) Um, But to understand why the appeals court overturned the verdict, you just need to know it's a case about the valuation of an oil project and Kinder Morgan lost. So the trial was actually held in August of 2020. And it was a hybrid of sorts. Uh, Most of it was in person, but Kinder Morgan's attorney was using Zoom. He'd gotten special permission from the court to proceed that way because he has had some health risks related to COVID-19. So that all makes sense. But where where did things go wrong? Well, the setup for the trial was pretty unusual for starters. It was held in a high school auditorium because that space allowed for proper social distancing Uh, seems like that venue didn't really help things from a technical perspective. The lead lawyer who was on Zoom was hampered by what they describe as glitches and internet outage and a bunch of issues playing audio for the live participants that were sitting in that auditorium. According to the appeals court, the trial transcript shows that Wadir in particular was very disjointed and the lead counsel's attempts to establish some kind of rapport with the jury that was ultimately paneled for this case We're just compromised by all the troubles. Here's what the court said overall. These technical difficulties and failures were beyond Kinder Morgan's control and prevented the lead counsel from accomplishing what he had been hired and expected to do to effectively participate and represent his client's interests at trial. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you can't it's you know, we most of the judiciary was, you know, kind of adapting kind of fast and loose to to what the new reality. You know, you said this was August 2020. This is somewhat early stage pandemic. And, you know, if you can't, if your lawyer literally can't get on the internet, it's going to be an issue for him to represent you. What did the other side have to say about this? This is quite a way to see you, to see a, uh, to see a wind go up in smoke. I'm sure they weren't oblivious to the difficulties at the time. Uh, They were, of course, present at the trial. What, um, what they have to say? Yeah. So it was a county appraisers who were on the other side of this. And they had argued on appeal that the company knew this lawyer had a health risk far enough in advance that they could have just gotten another lawyer who could have been in person with Mm, everyone else in this auditorium and avoided all of these problems to begin with. But the appeals court just didn't agree. They pointed out that the lead lawyer was specifically retained based on his expertise in this area of the law. And they essentially said, you know, pandemic times are weird and the company didn't display some kind of negligence in making the choice to carry on with this lawyer. It also pointed out that there was a compressed time frame for this trial. So finding someone else to represent them with that same level of tax expertise would have been really hard. I have to imagine that also this argument from the other side could potentially run afoul of some disability discrimination laws. Yeah, you know what, Haley, that brings up a good question. Um, you know, some of it depends on what the trial judge decides is OK. I mean, the trial judge could have said, no, everyone has to be in person, figure it out but instead had made this accommodation. Everyone knew it was made and they proceeded thinking Zoom would work properly. So it's really fact specific. I mean, this, I think my big takeaway from this is that Zoom trials are complicated, you guys. Um, Getting a ruling overturned is super fact specific. And this is just one case. So I don't want to oversell what this means moving forward. 
But the sheer number of courts out there that are conducting trials in unusual ways because of the pandemic, whether that's entirely over Zoom, partially over Zoom like this one, it it means that we're going to run into future issues. And I don't think this will be the last time a losing party cites Zoom as an appealable problem. All right. So next, we're going to talk about a case that involves uh, several pharmaceutical companies, which are in the news a lot these days. But this doesn't really have anything to do with vaccine manufacturing or distribution or anything like that. Uh, It's quite a serious case. Uh, Came out of the D.C. Circuit this week. Uh, The appeals court there uh, gave new life to a lawsuit that accuses several pharmaceutical companies, AstraZeneca, Pfizer, Uh, and other medical supply companies of financing terrorism through very lucrative contracts with uh, the Iraqi health ministry in the mid to late 2000s. So this is sort of, um, these are companies that sort of had these very expensive dealings with foreign governments that then gave rise to terrorist activity. And now they are being sued um, for financing that activity. It's quite, it's an unusual area of the law has understandably uh, drawn a lot of eyeballs, though. Yeah, unusual is probably the nicest way you could say that. This is <laughs> yes. kind of crazy. Um, give us more details. What this, what exactly happened here? Yeah, so this suit is being brought by U.S. service members uh, and their families and other victims of the Hezbollah-linked militia group Jaish al-Mahdi, uh, which openly controlled Iraq's health ministry and used it as a terrorist hub after the U.S. invasion in 2003. So the suit is uh, quite intricate, but the basic upshot is that uh, these pharmaceutical and medical supply companies secured contracts with the ministry through corrupt payments and kickbacks from 2005 to 2011, which effectively, because it was controlled by this terrorist group, aided and abetted terrorist attacks that were carried out by that group. The uh, companies were sued in 2017, and the suit got dismissed in 2020 after the district court found that the claims were just too flimsy to survive under the Anti-Terrorism Act. Um, And it also, the court also questioned whether it could assert jurisdiction over foreign defendants and basically just said, you know, hey, this is you you have to tie a lot of uh, activity to these companies for this very serious charge, and you haven't done enough in your complaint here, um, which kind of set the stage uh, for the appeal that we're talking about now. Pretty pretty bonkers. Uh, so now that the suit has new life, what is what did the the appeals panel have to say? Yeah, so the appeals panel basically took an entirely different view than the district court. They basically said that the the suit sufficiently alleges that the ties between Jaish al-Mahdi and the ministry were well known. It wasn't like, oh, we are entering into a normal government contract that was then sort of taken over by this militia group and that the the, the sort of ties between the two entities were well known and that the companies um, provided or or, are alleged to have provided these illicit payments knowing who was in control of the ministry. Now, the case is still at the motion to dismiss stage and the panel noted that in a well-pled uh, complaint, the allegations must be accepted as true. And that's pretty basic practice there. And they found that they, they are sufficient enough to survive that dismissal. And they sent the case back to the lower court for the case to basically begin again. Uh, here is a quote. 
Plaintiffs have adequately pleaded that defendants' payments to Jaish al-Mahdi proximately caused plaintiffs' injuries. The complaint describes how Jaish al-Mahdi controlled the ministry and used it as a terrorist headquarters. Accepting those allegations, defendants' dealings with the ministry were equivalent to dealing with the terrorist organization directly. The ministry was therefore not an independent intermediary that broke the chain of causation, but a front for Jaish al-Mahdi. So again, I mean, they are, they are trying to sort of clearly say that, as alleged in the complaint, you can't differentiate between this government entity and this terrorist group that effectively controlled it. What about all the jurisdiction stuff? I know you mentioned earlier there's some dispute about the foreign defendants, how that works with U.S. jurisdiction. What What's the deal there? I mentioned a couple of companies that are pretty well known. AstraZeneca, Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson is in there. There are all kinds of defendants who are caught up in this in this lawsuit, but the jurisdiction issue cropped up over foreign suppliers to the ministry who are not U.S. companies. And the sort of lower court said that there, there wasn't a, a sufficient enough U.S. nexus, which is always kind of the, the, the buzzword when there are laws with foreign applications like the anti-terrorism law, the alien tort statute has that as well. Um, but the appeals court took a different view. It said that the suppliers' close ties to U.S. manufacturers created that nexus to rope them into this anti-terrorism law. Here was their writing on that. Quote, the foreign supplier defendants direct, valuable, and ongoing sourcing of medical supplies and drugs for the Iraqi ministry from their affiliated manufacturers in the United States amounts to robust contact with the U.S. forum through which the foreign defendants purposefully availed themselves of the benefits of doing business here, which is a long way of saying, you know, the foreign suppliers were working on behest of U.S. companies. Therefore, we, the appeals court, think they are fair game to remain in the suit. So to wrap it up here, you know, like I said, all this does is get us past the dismissal stage. So there's a long factual path to walk, legal and factual stuff to untangle here. But obviously, these are huge, huge and hugely powerful drug companies, medical supply companies that are being accused of financing terrorism. And now we get to see whether a court can see it the same way. On Monday, a California federal jury convicted former Theranos CEO Elizabeth Holmes on four counts in her criminal fraud trial, but cleared her of charges that she defrauded patients with blood testing technology she knew didn't work. The split verdict follows a lengthy trial. Our own Dorothy Adkins was there every step of the way, and she's here today to explain what happened and what lessons we can learn from it all. Welcome back to the show, Dorothy. Thanks for having me. Well, let's begin really with a little refresher. It's been a super long trial, and I think some people maybe have even forgotten who Elizabeth Holmes is and what this was all about. Yeah, so Elizabeth Holmes was the CEO of a startup called Theranos, and its mission was to provide blood tests for a low cost, cheaper than rivals, with a, a few drops of blood, if not a single drop of blood, um, as opposed to the many vials that uh, typical uh, blood testing companies require. Um, in she founded the company uh, in the early in the mid two thousands, and it grew quickly. Uh, it was at its peak. It was valued uh, in twenty fifteen at about ten billion dollars, uh, but it quickly 
became the center of scandal when the Wall Street journals began reporting on it and uh, questioning the technology. Since then, the company itself has dissolved, and she and her co-alleged conspirator, Sonny Balwani, who was the COO, have been indicted on fraud and conspiracy. So they're facing separate trials, but her trial uh, began back in September and uh, came to a close uh, at the end of December. And so we got a verdict, finally, after a really long trial. Tell us how that all turned out. Yeah, so, you know, this this trial itself has been months in the making. It's It was extremely long by any standard. Uh, it took four months, uh, 53 days in total. The jury began deliberating just before Christmas, and uh, they took seven full days of deliberations before they reached a verdict. They reached it on Monday, and uh, they convicted her of three counts of wire fraud and one count of conspiracy. Uh, they cleared her on another conspiracy and wire fraud counts related to patients, and they were hung on a few other counts, but they they convicted her and of um, defrauding investors. So you spent four months of your life standing in line to get in every morning and, and listen to this whole trial. And then in the end, like everything else in this case, the outcome sounds a little complicated. Like there were there was certainly some charges on which she was convicted, but also, like you said, uh, some things where the jury was hung and others where they let her off the hook. Was this more of a win for Holmes or for the prosecutors? Well, I would say the the public at large had a difficult time understanding the verdict, but attorneys I've spoken to say that it's basically a clear win for the prosecutors because although they um, they acquitted her on counts she defrauded patients, it, in the sentencing phase, that will pretty much be considered a pure victory because um, the judge can consider some of the evidence against her um, regarding patients in um, determining what kind of sentence she gets. So at the end of the day, although uh, she was acquitted on some counts, when it comes to sentencing, it just might not matter. Well, what kind of sense are we even talking about here? Is there like a span of years that she's potentially facing? Well, in total, uh, she was convicted on four individual counts, and each count comes with a maximum of 20 years in prison. But that, again, is maximum. And everybody generally agrees that the judge is not going to stack those years, those 20 year sentences on top of each other. So although theoretically it could be an 80 year sentence, it's more likely going to be in the five to 20 year range. Um, Attorneys generally think that the the uh, sentencing guidelines do suggest that she will get a tougher sentence because of the amount of money involved in the alleged fraud. So there were, you know, the, the scheme involved over a hundred million dollars for the individual invest wire fraud counts, but also because there's the conspiracy count at issue that uh, suggests that the judge could consider the kind of wider amount of money, the broader amount of money, which was hundreds of millions of dollars in determining the losses at issue. So Generally, attorneys expect her to to get between five and 15 or 20 years. But, you know, considering the abuse claims at issue um, and some of her defenses, it's really anyone's guess. I think that uh, the sentencing is going to be another mini trial in and of itself. Wow. And so let's talk about the inevitable appeal. What are we expecting with that? Yeah. So because um, there's not a single issue that sticks out as a clear um, appealable error by the judge. um, But the fact that this trial has taken so long, 53 days, 
it has created the opportunity for the defense to raise a number of issues on appeal. So it could really be anything from evidentiary rulings to uh, whether it's pre-trial or um, during trial. So we know that it's going to be a long and hard fought um, way to the Ninth Circuit. Well, while we're waiting on sentencing and waiting on what appeal may emerge, we also have something else to look forward to. In February, the alleged co-conspirator, Sonny Balwani, that you mentioned before, he goes on trial himself. Is his legal team looking at this and gleaning any lessons? What what are they taking away from Holmes's trial? So this has been a very interesting thing to observe being in the courtroom. Sonny Balwani and Elizabeth Holmes were indicted together originally in 2018. Um, but shortly after the indictment came down, Balwani had fought the government to separate their trials because uh, Elizabeth Holmes claims that she was uh, physically and sexually abused by him. Um, the, the two had dated for about a decade, and um, she first met him when he was uh, she was 18 and he was 38, I believe. So the, the abuse uh, element of her case was a, a key kind of a key to her defense um, during trial. So Balwani had fought to keep their their trial separately. He argued that the abuse claims would be just too damning for a jury to hear. Um, in his own case. So the judge granted that request and uh, scheduled Balwani's trial after Holmes's trial. Uh, before Holmes's trial began, Hol- Balwani's attorneys fought to get, they asked the judge to like reserve seats for them. The judge refused to. Um, he said that, you know, there's no precedent for reserving seats for defense counsel in another another case. Um, so, but they have been there every day. They've, you know, and it's been a rat race to get into the courtroom. The courtroom uh, seating in the courtroom has been limited. And obviously this trial has had a lot of, um, media attention. So there have been, um, long lines to get in the courthouse basically every morning and in line were mostly press, but also, um, his attorneys at Oryx. So they're, they definitely kept a close eye on, on the, um, government's case throughout because, they basically now have a roadmap for um, what prosecutors will likely present to his jury, assuming, you know, he doesn't reach a plea deal before then. So you were there every day. Did you see any evidence that was presented by prosecutors that you expect will turn up again if Sonny Balwani does make it to his day in court? I think that everything will come in. I think that it will be largely the same evidence. What's the big question mark for me is whether or not prosecutors will bring up Holmes's abuse claims, right? Um, because Balwani's defense, in part, could be, "Hey, she she was in charge. She did everything. She did the fraudulent conduct. You know, I, I didn't have control." Counter argument to that would be, you, you could assume would be, "Oh, well, you know, she claims you you abused her." So, I, I think that that's going to be a very interesting thing to watch in his trial. Also, whether or not he testifies, he pled the fifth in Holmes case. Um, so he did not take the stand. Whether or not he pleads the fifth in his own case is yet to be seen. Yeah. I mean, I, I think this will be another really interesting one to watch if it does make it into that courtroom, because there were a lot of text messages back and forth between the two, a lot of emails, a lot of that kind of stuff that was really in their own words that was presented to the jury in Holmes's case. Yeah, I mean, I think the text messages are the 
<laughs> they they definitely were cringeworthy at times. Um, and I'm sure many of those will make it make its way into um, Balwani's trial. So they'll, they'll be it'll also be interesting to see whether or not jury selection is just going to be very interesting, considering all the media coverage that Holmes's trial got. So that'll be a show to watch. And if if that does go to trial, Dorothy, are you going to be forced to wake up at 4 a.m. again for several months to to be there <laughs> covering it? <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> first of all, it was some, some days it was definitely before 4 a.m. But um, so Yikes. I really hope not. <laughs> I, you know, one <laughs> one thing is, is that we're all hoping that there's not going to be I'm personally hoping there's not going to be uh, such a media circus around his his trial. Um, the, you know, you never know. He also might cut a plea deal. I mean, if a lot of attorneys uh, would recommend that he does. Well, we appreciate your dedication and this being essentially your new subbeat within court reporting. You're just covering these big fraud Silicon Valley trials. Um, but that kind of leads me to a bigger picture question for you. Does this seem to you as something that was just a one-off kind of case? Or can we expect the government to win, this government win, to embolden them to go after other potentially unscrupulous tech startups? Because you know, there's a lot of possible fraud in this space. Yeah, I've I've the attorneys I've spoken to have mixed opinions about that. You know, prosecutors certainly want this Holmes conviction to serve as a message to Silicon Valley that that they're they're going to crack down on fraudulent conduct, especially when it comes to early round uh, fundraising for startups. Some attorneys think that 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 will will indeed happen going forward. Um, other attorneys are less, or I guess more skeptical of it because this case was against Holmes was unique in many ways. Obviously, demographically, Holmes is not your typical white collar defendant. Uh, one attorney <laughs> frequently has pointed out that most white collar defendants are uh, middle-aged white guys, which is fair. And also that you know, the nature of what happened with Theranos, Theranos grew so quickly and was not successful while, you know, a lot of startups that grow quickly, if they are successful, um, they're not exactly raising flags for prosecutors or even investors because investors are making money at that point. So whether or not, you know, this, this does indeed uh, mark a shift in the mindsets of uh, Silicon Valley executives is anybody's guess. I would probably, personally, I'd probably land on the latter part of that. Also, just the nature of the claims at issue. Um, they're just, you know, they're, they don't come, they don't happen a lot in, uh, in courts or in, in corporate America in general. So we'll see. Well, either way, this one has been fascinating and really appreciated all your reporting on it. Thanks so much for coming and explaining all the aftermath to us. Thanks for having me. Liked in our show is something offbeat and Haley you're after my own heart with the first show back in in the new year I cannot wait to talk about this with you lead us into our topic for today Amber 
Alex. <laughs> As time marches relentlessly on, so too does the similarly relentless machine that is The Bachelor. Let's go. Bachelor <laughs> Hive. Activate. You, you knew we were going to do it, folks. I mean, it just premiered on Monday. I am giddy that we have this opportunity to, to discuss. Well, yeah, let's get into it. Who are we talking yeah. about this time? This season, we have been blessed, albeit briefly, with a Yale <laughs> law student in the player pool. Um, I trust you both watched the premiere on Monday. Of course we did. That's, I mean, not. I hope that question was rhetorical. You know, we did. I yeah. I have to be honest. I I mean, I was just doing the doing the hype uh, voice there. I am kind of watching The Bachelor out of muscle memory at this point. It's kind of lagging for me a little bit. But I always watch the first episode purely for show purposes because I like to see if there are any lawyers or other legal professionals in the pool. Um. So and and, and as you said, we have uh, one person to talk about. What was that all about? Well, before you even tell us about her, Haley, I just want to say when I saw it pop up that this woman was from Yale Law School, the best law school in the nation, I thought to myself, that that's, can't be right. She's on The Bachelor? What's happening? So please tell me more about her. Yes. Daria Rose is a 24-year-old 3L at Yale, um, mm-hmm. and she did her undergrad at Harvard. I know. Um, which, yeah, just adds to the... To the why? Why are you here? Um, <laughs> well, and she but, wasn't there for very long, but yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but uh, I did. I took it upon myself to lightly peruse her entire LinkedIn profile uh, last night, which was a joy. A joy. Thank you so much uh, for your service. <laughs> uh, and it appears she does have some big law experience under her belt, which I guess is like kind of predictable if you're at Yale Law School. Um, mm-hmm. In 2020, she was a summer associate at both Munger and Sussman Godfrey. In the summer before that, she was a law fellow at Skadden. Most recently, she was a legal intern at Sony Music Entertainment. I mean, that is the credentials I would expect of a Yale law student. Those are not the credentials I would expect of a Bachelor contestant because among her compatriots in Bachelor Nation were um, someone simply described as a self-tanner and um, another (laughs) person who was uh, listed as a bar mitzvah dancer like you just don't get this caliber usually yeah and and let us not forget that sometimes the producers go as far as to just label someone a twin yeah Yeah. it was that season where they had the twins and they were not given job titles they, were they just did another. Yeah. They did another no job title one this season, where one of the women was simply described as uh, being formerly engaged. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's right. Oh gosh. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. But wait, we didn't keep Daria very long, so maybe we should talk about that for a second. Yeah, I was honestly surprised because, and yeah, like like Alex, it's turning into muscle memory at this point. <laughs> but when I, she, she was given one of those coveted intro packages at the beginning. Yes, yeah. yes. And, and they usually use that to tee up someone who's going to have a long run. So that's very true. Mm-hmm. I was very surprised that she, and she didn't even really get much screen time. I will say I was surprised by it too, because, um, you know, I'm kind of joking around about how her credentials out, outstrip what you would expect in a bachelor contestant, but uh, in every other account, like she's what you would expect. She was extremely beautiful. She seemed like she sort of fit that mold of 
of what you would see on a show like this. Yeah. And I and really the only thing she pulled off was getting in some some nice rose puns involving her last name during her oh, right. limo <laughs> sure. exit. So props to that. So this would normally be where we stopped offbeat, where I was like, okay, well, we had Daria for a second and now she's gone. Goodbye, our lovely talk about reality TV. Yeah, but that's usually blessed. the extent of it. <laughs> but I am blessed by Haley also being a fan of things like every show on Bravo. Uh, I don't always have this in my friends on Pro Se. So, hey, you want to talk about some other legal entanglements in the reality TV world? I would be honored to. And my mother will be so ashamed. But <laughs> no, I, I, I think the opposite <laughs> is true. <laughs> I'm I'm trying really hard to get her into Bravo, but not no luck so far. Um, but yeah, fortunately for us, <laughs> this will do the plenty, trick. Go for it. Yes, this <laughs> yeah. this will do it. There are plenty of other instances in which uh, the monstrosity and blessing that is reality television overlaps with our coverage, and one of the biggest ones um, that happened over the last year, and that is going to uh, I think get juicier uh, this year was uh, the indictment of Real Housewives of Salt Lake City star Jen Shaw. I can talk about this for the rest (laughs) of my life. I mean, truly, it's like, it's when my loves come together, the law and this reality TV nonsense. It was thrilling to actually watch Jen Shaw, um, watch the, the government agents come in and try to arrest her on TV. Uh, we didn't see her actual arrests, but we saw them interacting with the other women on the show while they were looking for Jen. Um, anybody yes. that doesn't watch Bravo, though, maybe we should kind of dive into the particulars about what she's in trouble for. Yeah, the, the, the Bravo shows are a blind spot for me. I mean, I, 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 I generally know about the like depraved carnival that they that they all kind of play in. But like, what did this woman what was she what was the actual charge here? What was going on? So she's accused of being involved in a nationwide telemarketing fraud scheme that largely targeted the elderly. Oh, Yeah, it's just as bad as you think. Like, as you start to dig into this just a teeny little bit, you start to see, like, sort of the worst fraudulent type behavior going after some really vulnerable populations. Her wealth that she's displayed on the show over the years has always seemed questionable. I mean, sometimes you see people on on these Bravo housewife shows and you're like, oh, the husband's a noted, you know, plastic surgeon. Of course, they live in a giant house or, oh, that woman works in real estate and she's selling other mansions. So, of course, she has one herself. Mm -hmm. But Jen Shaw never quite made sense. Her husband is an assistant coach um, that doesn't, you know, not of huge notoriety, not like some big name that would be raking in a bunch of money. And so in some ways, I think Bravo fandom has been like, oh, of course she got indicted for fraud. Well, so what's going on with the case? So it's looking like it will head to trial in March, uh, which will mark almost exactly a year since her arrest. Last month, U.S. District Judge Sidney H. Stein, who is overseeing the case in the Southern District of New York, said that the ad hoc committee on the resumption of jury trials has scheduled the trial for March 22nd. Which we'll see, you know, if COVID moves that. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So um, not to constantly plug other stuff we do at Law 360, but this is very very, uh, in the world of um, a special thing that Brandon Lowry worked on for a long time, which covered Erica Jane um, and Tom Girardi. 
and mm-hmm. his scandal where it was revealed that he was stealing money from clients um, and sort of the aftermath of what happened with that. This is definitely in that same ballpark. If you're interested in these Bravo things, we did a two-part special podcast series on the Girardi mess, and we actually released that on the Pro Se feed over the holiday. So scroll back in your feed if you want to hear about that one some more. Uh, I know in the Shaw case, Haley, there were some attempts to kind of get the indictment tossed out. What did that look like? Yeah, this is the pinnacle of my journalism career, but I was able to <laughs> cover one of the orders denying her her bid to get one of her bids to get the indictment tossed. But she was arguing that the prosecutor's case was built on trickery and sleight of hand. Um, and most recently, she argued that it should be thrown out and the government should be sanctioned because of statements made by Homeland Security agents on uh, the Hulu documentary, The Housewife and the Shaw Shocker, which what a title. <laughs> Yeah, I was gonna say I'm I'm holding my tongue on a lot of jokes. Um, but I do <laughs> I love mean... <laughs> I love streaming is king, and I love when like statements made in like streaming documentaries become fodder for actual legal action. We talked about this with the Netflix documentary about the varsity blues thing. Um, that the guy said he was like defamed in there or whatever it was. So um all all about that. But that, but it sounds like that didn't work out for her trying to get it tossed on that on those grounds. No, yeah, judge. Judge Stein was not convinced, and uh, he he just said in a December 10th order that there's no evidence whatsoever to suggest Shaw's right to a fair trial was compromised or prejudiced. So. I mean, is the real problem here that she doesn't have Kim Kardashian on her legal team? Because Jen did suggest to her attorney that maybe Kim needs to be brought on board. I completely forgot about that. Oh, my God. <laughs> it could have made the difference, you guys. Kim could have solved this. <gasps> yes. Well, uh, while we have you, Haley, I know there's one more you kind of wanted to give us an update on. What's our final reality TV suit we're going to talk about? Yes. So, you know, not to immediately drag you guys back into Bachelor land, but there's <laughs> a copyright infringement case in California federal court right now that I, I don't think is really getting a ton of press because not that much has happened since it first kicked off, but it involves... Season 24 ring winner, Hannah Ann Sluss um, and Mm. Procter & Gamble. Yeah, this was in the glut of Hannah's and Hannah Ann's and Hannah Anna Anna Bananas. Um, But yes, uh, she's the (laughs) one that Peter picked and then later spurned. But anyway, um, what's going on in the case? So Sluss was a model before competing on The Bachelor, uh, which is pretty common for contestants. And in the suit, she's alleging that Downey used a photo of her jogging in an ad campaign after the license expired on the photo and after her popularity exploded from Mm. The Bachelor. And the suit was filed September 15th, but Celeste didn't serve the complaint until mid-December and only after the court ordered her to show cause as to why the suit shouldn't be thrown out. Celeste had said, you know, they she'd been in settlement talks with Procter and Gamble. So according to her, it wasn't a big deal that she dragged her feet on that. I think this is a really interesting one because um, you do see people who become more famous sometimes having old photos used in this way. Like the thing that it kind of reminds me of is Simu Liu, who became much more famous after he was in a Marvel movie, used to be a stock model. And so a lot of his old stock photos oh, show yeah. up in weird places. <laughs> and yes. everybody's like, yeah, that guy's really famous now. But obviously a, a 
intentional stock photo has a much different licensing structure. So he can't really stop that. But maybe Hannah Ann can. Yeah, it's it's not the juiciest case. And I, I imagine it'll get settled. But it is really entertaining to me to picture, you know, some Procter and Gamble people like eating popcorn, watching The Bachelor and being like, oh, I think we have a photo of that girl somewhere. Let's dust <laughs> it off. It's like Mulholland Drive. This is the girl right here. This <laughs> yes. is the one we need. It's a real it's a, it, it's a real uh, uh, spin cycle she's in. I mean, getting proposed to oh. and then broken up with by Peter and then getting sort of jobbed by a, uh, a by a consumer goods conglomerate. I don't know. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's it's quite a whirlwind. Allegedly. I, I just love that the hits keep coming for me with all these um, reality lawsuits. And I hope we can do wrap ups like this in the future too. kind of see where these are at and what new ones have been introduced into this little subgenre that we can cover. Um, so thanks, Haley. Really appreciate you bringing it all. Thank you for for allowing me. <laughs> such a privilege. Take a, take a bow. That's what I say. <laughs> a really great first show back in the new year. Uh, appreciate both of you being with me. Thanks, Alex. Thank you. And thanks again, Haley. Thank you. And I'd also like to thank our producers, Kelly Mercano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our guests this week, Dorothy Atkins, and our contributing reporters, Corey Atkinson and Cara Salvatore. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. And as always, if you like Pro Se, we'd love it if you left a written review on your favorite podcast platform because it really does help other people find our show. If you want to read more about anything we talked about, check out our website. It's law360.com slash podcast. And we'll see you again next week.